I, I have to say that um, I wanted, I was curious on where we were at on the Providence series, so I went back and looked uh, on the YouTube channel. I counted up the, uh, the, the number of weeks, and uh, we are exactly at 26, this will be our 26th week, exactly half a year on the Providence series. So we had sort of generally God's providence over all things, and then His providence or so- sovereignty over salvation, and we are exactly at the half year mark for this series. Can you believe that? Wow. It's hard to believe it's been six months since we started the series. Several people think it's 26 years. <laughs> so they went fast as some of us. Um, so we, we, are, we are wrapping up today uh, with our last week on the, uh, on the Providence series. And um, we're, we're going to sort of come back a little bit full circle and come back to where we started here at the beginning today. And we'll review a couple things we started with uh, six months ago. So uh, before we get to that, Jerry, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, yes, sir. Father, what a uh, great joy to come before your throne of grace, knowing that you're in control. Lord, um, that gives us such hope and such security, and it thrills our soul. Um, And best of all, we know it's biblical because uh, your word is so clear, and um, we would ask, Father, that today as we feast on your word and as we consider the application to such great truth and doctrine that we would, um, that our minds and our hearts would be soaked in this truth in such a way that we would be saturated. It would change the way we live tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and the rest of our lives, um, trusting you um, at a different level than we ever have before. We think you are, that you're all loving and all-knowing and all-powerful. And so today, Father, we commit this time to you just overwhelmed. Um, by your sovereignty and your providence and your, your great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die. And, uh, we pray that we would be further convinced of truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a few opening comments, perhaps, before we jump in. And Jerry, let me, let me ask you a question here. Uh, I, I love the uh, unprepared questions. Yeah. Uh, just what, in all seriousness, we spent half a year on this topic. Uh, there's a lot of things we could have talked about over the last six yeah, months, yeah. and we certainly touched on many things uh, in Scripture, but why would it be worthwhile to spend as much time as we did on God's sovereignty? Yeah, I think so much of Scripture uh, teaches it that I know we could spend another year or two or three or eight on it. It just, there's no end uh, to the depth of it. And I wonder if because it's so hard for, at least for my heart and maybe for yours, as well, to really grasp well, to really live well. I think it's easier to talk about Mm -hmm. every, for the last 26 weeks at two o'clock, it's been really fun to talk about it. But then at about 3.13 or tomorrow at 2.30, I'm not living it very well. You know, I'm forgetting it. So I, I think just the importance of 26 weeks on it is to really flood our thinking with it. And, uh, you know, um, hopefully that just helps us to, when we read Scripture, to always see every time that that's uh, mentioned, and it would change the way we, we think and live. Well, let me just hand it to you guys, too. Why spend as much time as we have on this topic? I mean, I think, we, I mean, just piggybacking on what Jerry said, I mean, one would be, one would be, well, I'll just say one would be worship, which I always, what I've said so many times, Packer's quote, uh, theology is meant to lead us to doxology. And certainly this topic, you consider tulip, and you're going through, thinking about your salvation, like it was nothing in my hands I bring, simply the cross I claim, that God did all in salvation. 
oh man, it should make us want to sing, like even during the week when we think about it, it should make us want to worship, even just sing louder over there within in the sanctuary. So I think it should produce deeper worship in us when we consider this. But the application, though, is like Jerry said, I think R.C. Sproul talked about justification by faith. He said it's so easy that a child can understand justification by faith, but it's hard to get in our bloodstream. The same, I think, with this topic, God's providence, his sovereignty. It's easy to understand it and grasp it, but then it's hard to get into our bloodstream to live it out. But once we begin to live it out each week, it's going to have a transformative effect on our lives. And so 26 weeks, if it produces where we're thinking about it regularly with, with the cold that we have, the inconvenience, or whatever it is, uh, like my son's been sick, again today, he's like, does he have an ear infection or not? And you just think, though, that God has good and wise purposes, and you, you just over and over and over and over again. So when the big trial does come, there's this deep confidence that God is at work, he has good and wise purposes, and it will, will help us to face all kinds of storms, because we know God is good and sovereign and in control. I don't mean to be trite when I say this, but I mean, it, it is this simple. We, we spend this much time in it because Scripture shouts this doctrine. Yeah. Um, once you start to really see it, it's not just here and there. It's everywhere. I mean, the Bible is absolutely flooded with God's sovereignty. It is absolutely flooded with it, and that's a good metaphor, I think, for how we need to understand this. I mean, you have to work really hard to deny that it is. You have to work really hard to, to ignore, to minimize, to try to reinterpret it because there are so many clear statements about the sovereignty of God over all of life. And a study like this, like I, I was convinced before we came into it, but spending this much time in it has only made those roots go deeper, made my confidence more sure, um, and my, my hope better. Like, it, it just is. And so, you know, why spend this much time? Because God put it in Scripture that loudly and that consistently, and therefore it's good for us to linger here. It's been good. Like, I know we said, and we said it was like, it's going to be weird. Like, I'm excited about our, you know, you know, for the Esther class, I'm excited about what, what we're going to be doing in here. But like, in a sense, I'm going to miss this because I, I could keep talking about this. Like, it is so good. Um, and so I, I hope, you know, it, it's done nothing but light a fire in our hearts of, of like you were saying, love for God, worship, um, and, and, and a zeal, uh, you know, to, to go and tell and talk about our God and share the gospel. Why? Because our God will save. He can save, and he will save. Um, and so I could say a lot more, but I'll, I'll stop there. Go one more quick thing. I think we're guaranteed of the trials, right? In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Um, there, so we know our light momentary troubles are achieving for us, eternal glory out far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what's seen, but on what's unseen. We know they're coming. So since they're coming, every one of those tempts me, every trial, and there's 37 a day, aren't there? So every one of those tempts me not to believe this. So that's why having a firm grasp on this doctrine, why would you say, Mark, from your perspective, what, what's been good about the 26 weeks? No, I mean, that's all really, really great stuff from you guys. I mean, just, just take any sin almost. I mean, you take, take the sin of bitterness and unforgiveness. Yeah. So you, you just have this built up against somebody because they've treated you in a way that is truly sinful. We're not denying that we get sinned against. Joseph's we, brothers. Joseph, Joseph's brothers is the, is the perfect example. And how do I deal with the bitterness and the unforgiveness when someone has truly wronged me? 
And if I don't believe God has good purposes, even for the difficulty and even the sin that comes against me in my life, then I'm going to despair. I'm going to give in to bitterness, unforgiveness. I'm never going to be kind to this per person. I'll treat them poorly. But we're going to say with Joseph, in our best moments, by God's grace, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so if it's bitterness and unforgiveness, you've got to see God's sovereignty in it. Uh, if it is discouragement, like things have not been going the way you want in your life, does God have good purposes for your difficult circumstances? He absolutely does. And if I believe that, that's going to slowly begin to draw me, maybe even quickly draw me, depending on how much I'm willing to believe it, out of that pit of discouragement. And you can go on and on. Anxiety. Mm -hmm. we're, we're worried because we think that we've, God's got to do it our way. And if God doesn't do it my way, then things are going to be messed up. But God has a superior way that may not look the way I want, but it's going to be the best in the end. And if I can entrust this to God, I don't have to worry. The peace of God will, will guard my heart in Christ Jesus because God's going to take care of this. So I think it applies to virtually every practical matter of sanctification you can think of. How about one more? Haunted by your own past sin and failure. What do you do about that? Does God even work our past sin for our good and we repent of it, we hate it, we despise it, but does God even have purposes for that to humble us, to show us our need for Christ, to show us our dependence on, on His grace? So whatever it is that we're dealing with, some way or another, it connects to God's sovereignty and His goodness, never minimizing our responsibility at all. But I, I think that it's one of the most practical doctrines when it comes to sanctification. And like you said, Scott, worship, I mean, my goodness, if I really believe my conversion was decisively brought about by God's grace, not because of my free will, ultimately, but because of God's grace and intervention in my life, think about how radically that makes us think about why we're Christians. So I, I think no matter which way we look at it, th this doctrine is so crucial. And I'm glad you mentioned humility. That would be a huge one, right? This is, should be the most humbling doctrine. Uh, you know, out of all the humbling doctrines there are, this should top the cake, maybe. Yes, so let's, we're going to go full circle back to where we started. If you were here the first, maybe second week on the series, I'm going to quote here from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, if you can read that print on the screen there. And uh, we'll, we'll see if, if this is your second time through this with us. Perhaps some of these things, hope will be even clearer, perhaps. Uh, maybe it's going to be more money, we'll see. But hopefully uh, it will be a little bit clearer uh, from the first time we read it. Uh, this is, again, from 400 years ago, about God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain, so God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, yet so, as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, so he is not the author of evil, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything, because he foresaw it as future, or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions? Let's just stop here just for a brief moment. We won't spend long on this. But this balance, again, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, Ephesians 1.11, but this in no way makes God the author or actor of evil. Any, any quick word on, on that before we move forward? All right, let's move to the next slide. So uh, on providence, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his own wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God, in his ordinary providence, makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them. Uh, 
the almighty power, unsearch, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of, of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And then I, I want to review again here. I'm just reading several things quickly. Spurgeon's great quote on providence. Uh, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He who believes in God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between an almighty God who works all things according to the good pleasure of his will and no God at all. Any comments on this section? Just going back to what, what Scott emphasized, I mean, the more we think about it, the more it should move us to worship. Um, you think about Spurgeon's quote there, uh, every particle of dust, um, the spray that dashes against the steamboat, like, and, and I don't want to linger on this too long for time's sake, but you think about the spray on a steamboat, that's like, boom. Like it's going and it's new spray every time it's coming up and down. It's not the same. Yet we know there is, you know, there is such beauty and glory in that moment, because if, if you've seen those those videos, um, you know this is one one of the one of the few benefits of of social media and some of our modern technology is things can be shared as we have like tech insights into the world. And you've seen those 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 videos where you have like the the super slow mo cameras, and you like see this drop of water come down, and then you like see it this real slow like and like the symmetry of it, like how much there is, what it does. I mean, like we would not be able to appreciate that aspect of God's creation without the technology God has enabled us to have. But again, it's like what Spurgeon, it's like, like we, we aren't aware of that unless we can slow it down. And yet God is getting glory from that kind of stuff all the time, all the time, all over the world and all over the universe. Things we, we are barely aware of. God, like they are shouting and praising his glory and his goodness. Um, all the time. And, you know, thank the Lord, we have the ability to see a little more of that than we used to. The sum of all that, too, makes just me think, this whole thing isn't about us. Aren't you so glad? It's so freeing, that, the idea that, of self-forgetfulness here. And, and, to, and it goes back to your idea on worship, Scott, that we need to really beware of any self-worship that it creeps in to our days, you know, or self-pity, or all thoughts of self can slowly be uh, eradicated when we um, think about God in the right way there. Yes, and if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Job chapter 1. We'll get there in just a few minutes. Uh, Job chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'm going to read one more here. This one, again, from the Heidelberg Catechism that we started with uh, six months ago. Again, this is one of the most beautiful. I know, Papa, you love this one. This is such a beautiful definition and explanation of God's providence. Heidelberg Catechism writes this for question 27. Uh, what dost thou mean? You've got to love the dost thou. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, 
as it were, by his hand. He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Next question. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence doth still uphold all things? So what's the advantage of knowing this? That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. That is just as, as I don't know how you can say it more wonderfully and succinctly than, than those couple of statements from the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. Why do you think there's a, such a pushback on believing this about our Lord? Why? Why not believe this? It seems to us that it's so biblical. What do you, why do you think uh, there's the pushback, if that's the right word? And Greg? My guess, based on um, all that I've seen and studied thus far, is human pride. Really? Yes. That we kind of like to be boss. We, we want to be able to play that part and have that role and make that decision and have that kind of impact. Yeah, it makes we sense. We don't like it when that's taken away from us. We just don't. Um, and, I, and I say that there are genuine, godly, Jesus-loving, Bible-embracing Bible believers who are absolutely blind to their pride on this issue. They do not see that they are trying to claim for themselves what is only due to God. And going along with that, I think that, and we've talked about this throughout the series, I think another issue that comes up a lot is uh, it's trying to, quote, get God off the hook yeah. for mm -hmm. bad, bad things that happen in the world. And I think that the most extreme form would be, well, why doesn't God choose to save everybody? And we've talked about that. We won't go through that right now. We spent weeks on those kinds of issues. But I think, I think an, an, an instinctive thing is, well, if God is a God of love, and he could choose anybody, he would certainly choose every single person to save. He would certainly choose 100% of humanity. And I think that adjusting to the idea that God has, uh, it, whichever system you look at, he doesn't choose to save everybody. But how he goes about that in this system is ultimately for his own glory. And we saw that through the Exodus and what he does with Pharaoh and the, and the Egyptians there. But uh, I think that seeing that God is the center of the universe, not humanity, is one of the hardest things to come to terms with on this whole issue because the, the ultimate priority is the glory of God, not me. And I, I think that that's a huge, uh, people, you know, it's been called a Copernican revolution, right? You had the geocentric view of the world where the earth was the center and the sun went around us, we thought, for so long. And then when Galileo and Copernicus say, hey, wait a second, actually, the way these bodies are moving, it looks actually like we are going around the sun. Blasphemy! <laughs> How dare you say that? That can't be true. People got furious at Galileo and Copernicus, but they were right. Uh, the sun was the center. We're going around the sun. And similarly, I think that there's, we're all born thinking that we are the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, babies, we, infants think that they are the center of the universe. The way that they talk to their parents and act, they just believe that. We all are prone toward that. All of us, by nature, are, think, I'm the center. My will, my desires, my, what seems to be good for me is central. And to think God is just a little add-on that goes around my life. But then God says, actually, the Bible says God is the sun blazing at the center. His glory is fundamental. I am incidental compared to God, and I'm, I'm orbiting around his glory, and I, I'm meant to do his bidding and for his glory. 
it is such a radically different view of the world that I do think it is a process of, uh, through time where the Spirit works on us to, and we, every day we're going to fall short of, of wanting and believing that as we should. Can I just say, say yeah. something back? The question number 27, it ends with the fatherly hand, right? Yeah. That's what it says there, which I think is very important for the, for the believer. I mean, you can see God's power, like he, he's awesome in power. When you see every little drop of rain and every bit, like the steamboat, like Spurgeon's quote that Greg was saying, like, man, that should cr create worship. But for the believer, it's like this God who's awesome has adopted me. Like he's my father now. And so then every single thing, every little raindrop that drops on my head, every sunset that I see, every pleasure and pain and everything in between is for my good and for his glory. I mean, that's where it's extraordinary. When you, when you get down to that level, this awesome God who controls everything is controlling everything in such a way for me to produce my sanctification for my good. I mean, that's where you, you just fall on your knees and worship him when you think, wow. Every, I mean, there's no maverick mo molecules, but there's no maverick anything in my life. Like everything is purposed, every single thing and weighed out. So it should produce thanksgiving and patience, all those things that they say. And I just, those are great questions, the Heidelberg, you know, and answers. So we're going to spend a little time now doing something. And we, we want to be gracious in our tone, my goodness. We're dealing with an extraordinarily difficult situation. It's on the screen here. This is the cover of a short book uh, written by Ben Witherington and his wife, Anne. Ben Witherington is a well-known New Testament scholar. He's uh, interviewed in The Case for Christ. So he's, he's in one of the chapters of The Case for Christ. Uh, he is definitely uh, an old-school sort of Arminian. He's a five-point Arminian. And so we want to be gracious because he's dealing with the death of his adult daughter in this, in this book. No one in here is going to treat that uh, lightly. His daughter, I believe, was 32 years old. Uh, and when, when she passed away, her name was Christy Ann. And uh, she had, I believe it was a pulmonary embolism. Her brain, she just died instantly in her home. And she was... Um, uh, it's just a, just a grief-inducing grief story, and no question about it. We want to read just from the opening few pages of this book. And again, we, we want to balance something that's very hard to do. We're, we're walking into an extraordinary situation that, that is very challenging, but we also want to be graciously critical of how he's evaluating the situation. Now, you see how we've set ourselves up for a difficult task, okay? So we're, we're, we're gonna, we want to be sensitive, but we also want to be as clear as we can about how to respond. So I think this gives a great example of how the two sides, if we want to say it that way, look at tragedy from very different lenses, through, through very different lenses. So these are the opening words of chapter one. Uh, these, are, these are straight from his book. I've added some underlining to the, to the sections to, just to draw some things out. And the, the first statement here, we're, we're gonna be in agreement with uh, here, he says, I was determined from day one after Christie's death uh, to be open to whatever positive thing there might be to glean from this seeming tragedy. I clung to the promise of Romans 8.28 that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So, so far, so good. This is, that, that's the right thing to do. But then you're going to see that we start running into some issues here, and I want you guys to, to come in and, and speak as we go. So here's what he says. The first point that was immediately confirmed in my heart was theological. God did not do this to my child. God is not the author of evil. God does not terminate sweet lives with a pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolisms are a result of the bent nature of this world. As Anne, his wife, kept, kept repeating, God is not the problem. He is the solution. So let's, with graciousness, how can we begin to untangle? Because I, I think we've got some problems already here so far. What, what, how can we respond to some that's been said? Scripture is, um, scripture is oh so clear on this. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 39, uh, God says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. And He's saying this to His people, okay? He says, I kill and I make alive. I wound 
and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Again, we want to be gracious in this, but he is not letting all of Scripture speak to his situation, or he's willfully ignoring it. I mean, he just is. Um, it can't be clearer. I mean, that one verse amongst many like completely refutes what he's already starting to say. God, I mean, again, what it says, God does not do this. God wouldn't do that. God did not do this to my child, and yet God says, I'm the one who, who does this. And that pushes us back to what we've talked about so many times. What, what's going on underneath the action? You know, we've looked at Joseph. We've looked at um, a, lot of, a lot of things. We, we've unpacked this in so many ways. Like, just because God brings something about, we cannot, on the surface of it, say, well, I don't like it, therefore God, either God didn't do it or God did wrong. Like, that, that's, that's when I talk about, like, our pride. Um, it manifests itself in this way, too. Like, we, we um, just, we have to be so careful um, to evaluate God by our own limited feelings and emotions. We have to evaluate what God is doing by His Word. Not by what we think, not by what we feel. I mean, the whole phrase, I like to think about God as the whole premise of that is already wrong. It's not up to us to think about who God is. God's going to tell us who he is, and then we adjust our thinking accordingly. And I think that even some of the use of language here is a little bit problematic. So, so just again, we want to be very careful here. God is not the author of evil. Now, let me just ask you here. Is it, is it evil? Is it morally evil of God to take a human life? No. God has the right to give life. He has the right to take life. So he, can, he puts this, under, he's, if God took the life of my daughter, God would be the author of evil. Is that true? No, it's not evil for God to take human life. God doesn't owe human life to us. He gives it as a gift. Every breath is a gift from God. And if he stops our lungs from working or our heart from beating, that is not evil of God. God has not authored evil. And here also, the, the wife said, God is not the problem. He's the solution. But again, is God doing something problematic if he brings about this circumstance? No, God can be the solution and still be working def very difficult circumstances for our good. Jerry? Yeah, I think you just said it. The good in Romans 8, 28, I wonder if that's at stake here. We believe that the good in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, and that in verse 29, that good would be um, defined as conformed to the image of his son. And so good, we believe, wouldn't mean pleasant or fun or enjoyable, which certainly this is tragic. But it is conforming us to the image of his son. So again, if that's the definition, then what God did here is truly good or any like i would love to hear scott a little bit more on your perspective there but the hardest things that happen in our life the hardest things that happen in our life are making us more like jesus and if that's the goal i'm afraid that we're mixing up trying to be comfortable that that would be what god wants and i don't think that's what he wants i think he wants us to be christ-like yeah i mean again i would just say we unimaginable pain. I mean, I cannot imagine losing an adult child. I mean, it's just good night. I mean, you have to have compassion for, for him for that. Uh, but uh, 
having said that, I mean, I think one guy, Tim Challies, I think, was being interviewed, and they talked about this. They said, we don't even have a word in the English language to describe a parent who's lost a child. You have, if a, if a mm. child loses his parents, they're an orphan. If a husband loses a wife, they're a widow. But there's no term. They think, and he was just saying, this is so hard. Like, maybe there's not even a term to describe because it's, it's maybe the worst of all sufferings is what I've heard said. But having said that, I just feel like, take people in church history who've suffered like him. I'll just read some quotes that are just going to go so, so against him. Uh, this is what uh, Spurgeon said, who suffered greatly. He said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement or their weight and quantity. So it's very sharp and trying to think that God didn't have anything to do with this. And then Adoniram Judson, who suffered as much as probably any missionary ever, except for maybe Paul, said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. And then Tony Ranke writing about John Newton, who suffered a great deal, he says, trials are medicines measured out with care and prescribed by our wise and gracious physician. He proportions the frequency and the weight of each dose exactly to what the case requires. I mean, that, this is a very different view than what he's saying. He's saying, like, God had nothing to do with this. Well, that's terrible news. If you remove God from the equation, that is absolutely horrible news. God is there, and this is why it's so, so, so good and so comforting uh, for the believer that he's, he's in control. Yeah, it's important to say here, just, just so we not be misunderstood. We are not, this goes without saying, but sometimes you need to say it. We are not saying, this is what you, you go to the person who's just lost their child and start giving them this lecture. Do not do that. Do not do that. Please do not do that. We're not saying, this is, this is a 10 year ago thing. We're, we're, this person's not present in the room. We're not in a counseling situation. Please understand, uh, like John, John Piper told the story where he, he teaches on the sovereignty of God all the time and he gets a call, uh, a, a, a guy maybe in his 50s or 60s had his adult son, his like 25 year old son named David was having a, a, minor, a relatively minor surgery. He died completely unexpectedly in this minor surgery. The, the guy calls John Piper, says, David's dead. John Piper doesn't start into a sermon on the Reformed theology. He races to the hospital, he grabs this guy, and they weep together all afternoon. That's what you do. You just sit there like, Job's friends got one thing right, which is when they first showed up to meet Job, what do they do? For seven days, they said nothing. And that was the one time they were doing the right thing. As soon as they started trying to tell Job what was up, they got everything wrong and they just ruined, they, they added insult to injury, really. So no, it, if we're dealing with a real life person right in front of us going through this, we're not gonna give them a lecture. Please don't ever do that. We're gonna come and we're gonna weep with those who weep. We're gonna be like Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, deeply moved in his spirit, weeping at, at, at sin and death and its effects and, and not at all there to preach a sermon. We're there to love and to, and to, to be with that person. But we, we're from the cold of, 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 from the distance of a number of years and looking at this theologically, we do think it is not wrong. We think it's right and helpful to examine how these things are looked at and to, to come from, a, I hope, a biblical perspective on this. And wouldn't you say after, and this is, again, what we want to do for a half a year, to get this deep in our bones. So when those trials do come, and that'll be somewhat of a trial tomorrow for sure, and the next day and the next day, and bigger than some days than others, that this is so... If Scott, it was the way you and Liliana went through such a hard time. It was so deep in your bones that there was a different godly way to see it. And uh, that's the beauty of this. Not we believe it because it's true, but it's also so comforting. I don't find the comfort um, in this at all. Well, let me continue here with the quote. So there's the next part of his quote. One primary reason I am not a Calvinist is that I do not believe in God's detailed control of all events. Just hear how different this is from what we've tried to teach for the last six months. I'm not a Calvinist. Why are you not a Calvinist? I don't believe in God's detailed control of all events. I just, 
Scott, you, you shared this uh, a while back that you said it was, you felt like going through all that y'all went through last year, it was like you were inside of a mountain of, of the promises of God, and there was a storm, an unimaginable storm outside the mountain. And, and can you, you, you talked about getting near the edge at times and feeling what it would be like to live outside of the promise. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, I mean, I just start by saying that there's a, there's a children's book that was written by Johnny Gibson, I guess is, is his name. Yeah. The moon is always round. If yes. you read it with your kids, you're going to cry. You're going to cry every so, single time. I'm going to cry now thinking about it, but it, he lost, they had a stillborn child. And so it full just, term, full term, I mean, unimaginable. Uh, and he talks about it, it's a quiet grief that I can't, it's just emotionally thinking about it. Like he says that he'll see kids that it would be his daughter's age, like running around and he's, he grieves. But he, oh he wrote this book, The Moon is Always Round, to, to basically tell his son, to, to talk to his son about the goodness of God. And, and the story is that the moon is always round, meaning that no matter if you can see the moon or not, the moon is always round, meaning God is always good. It's, it's his big point. So sometimes you can't see the moon. Sometimes it's a half moon, sometimes a quarter moon. But it doesn't mean the moon's always round. So it's like, no matter what you're facing, you may not see the moon. There may be dark clouds, but you, you know that, that God is always good in, in the trial and in the suffering. And that is what will sustain you. I mean, I, you're, it's almost a year ago now, exactly. That's going to be so hard to even... I, when we were in the hospital, I grabbed tissue on the way in over there because I knew I was going to need it. Uh, we were there, and uh, they took her for the, the CT scan the first time, and they came back, and they, that's when they, then they found the mask, and they're telling me all about it, and lots of questions, and they called the neurosurgeon that came in, and I met with him, and all this stuff happened, tons of stuff. I can't remember all the details and when it all happened, but I do remember they sent a social worker over there, and she, she was going to pray with me and stuff like that, but then she said they gave her a different band, arm band. Uh, because I'm assuming because she was a very serious case now. But she said, uh, I think she said, why does this happen? She's so young, something like that. Well, I'm not going to give it, I'm not going to answer her in that moment, but I knew deep down I know why. God is like always good. And I felt like there's this raging storm, and if I stick my hand out, like, I knew it was going to be swept away. Like, in this, it was too big, it was too massive of a storm. And since we've gone through Romans 8, these promises are so precious, so sweet, that they sustain you again and again, that you just, you just know that every single detail of this is for God's glory, and you're good. And I remember going home that night, and Elizabeth Elliot, that Elizabeth Elliot quote that is ingrained in my mind, uh, God is always doing something, the very best thing, the thing we would most certainly choose if we knew the end from the beginning. I feel like the more you get removed from a trial the more you can begin to see God's goodness again and again, and you, you're just like, that's what sustains you. I don't know, it's, all, it's a whole mess muddled, but yeah. Because the, the effort here is really, I think, trying to get God off the hook, saying mm -hmm. we don't want to say God's behind this very extraordinarily difficult, unpleasant circumstance. Therefore, we make God look kinder, kinder because he's not behind that thing. The problem is you end up robbing the most difficult times of life with God's true purpose in them. Because now, what's God's good purpose for me? And if God is not in detailed control of all events, because he says here, so why don't I believe God's in detailed control first on the screen? Because I find it impossible to believe that I am more merciful or compassionate than God. I mean, Jerry, because the words merciful and compassionate, I think, are being very misunderstood mm -hmm. here. How would you respond to that idea? Yeah, certainly, well, we aren't. But that's the most 
compassionate thing that God can do is what we get every day. We are never getting less than his full 100% compassion and 100% mercy. He's never less than 100% merciful to us or gracious or loving. Scott talked about him as our Heavenly Father. Just like I, as a dad, would love to give my kids the very best thing. I'm just short on resources. He's never short on resources. So we always get his very best every day. So we aren't more compassionate or merciful. We're just understanding that in a wrong way. God's not compassionate when he gives us what we want. He's compassionate when he gives us more of himself. To be more like Jesus, that's what we want. And that's what's eternal, not the temporary pleasures of this world. Yes. Sorry, just one quick quote and, uh, from Spurgeon on this idea about getting on suffering. He said, I'm afraid that all the grace that, I've got of my that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might al almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. So again, you mm -hmm. got to see God's goodness in the suffering. So often it's the sufferings where he drives us deep into himself and again, we'll see his goodness. But sorry, Greg. No, that's fine, man. Um, I was thinking the old Cooper hymn that we've mentioned before, you know, God moves in a mysterious mm -hmm. way. What's the one line in there? Um, was it? Uh, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, nor scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Um, I mean, that, that, that's rooted in a, a, a robust biblical um, understanding of the sovereignty of God. Um, you know, again, we don't want to judge God by our feeble sense, by our definition of mercy, by our definition of compassion, by our definition of love, what's, what's fair, what's not fair, what's just, because we are sinful and fallen creatures. Like, we are going to judge God wrong if we judge him based on our standards. We just will, even the best of us. We, we will fall prey to a sinful perspective on God, um, which we don't want to do. And so, we, we, we have to go back to what does Scripture say? And like uh, we've said this many, many times, it's like issues like this will push us, you know, into the most uncomfortable places when it comes to how much of God's Word will I actually receive as God's Word? Mm -hmm. Will I receive it all as it is, or will I receive most of it and then reinterpret the rest that I don't like? And I mean, that is what they're doing. I don't say that with any triumphalism or anything like that, but he is his very first reason why he says he's not a Calvinist is because he finds it impossible to believe he is more merciful or compassionate than God. What is his definition of mercy and compassion if it's not the way Scripture uses it? And then what does that actually look like in the Bible? I mean, what, what did James say about... I mean, look, look I'm, we didn't plan on this, but I, I want to look at this. Into James, y'all. Like, this is so amazing here. We look at what Job suffers... Um, where is it at? Um, I'm not going to be able to find it now that I want to see it. About Job? Yeah, where he talks about... 5.11? 5.11. Yeah, li listen to this. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And listen to what he says about what Job went through. He says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is what? Compassionate and merciful. Mm. I mean, that's including everything that Job went through. 
Not just the end of the book, that's from the beginning to the end. Every single thing Job went through is God's mercy and compassion to Job. Because what did it ultimately lead to? Job's repentance. Job's seeing God in a way he'd never seen God before. Um, and, and guys, like we need to be jealous for God's glory in these things. We need to be as humble as we can be, as gracious as we can be, but we need to be unflinchingly jealous for God's glory in this. Because God is not honored by that. And I grieve for them because they're finding comfort in something that is, is thin air. It's, it's a paper tiger. It's a house of cards. It can't stand. And I hate that for them because they're missing, like, let me, dude, like, you are like the spitting image of, of the opposite of that in, in all the right biblical ways. And, and I mean that with all my heart. It's like they, they are missing out on the comfort and the joy that comes with trusting in a sovereign God. Well, I think that's right. I think that there, there's a missing out on comfort. And just, just so you can see more here, furthering the quote from Ben Witherington, Second reason why he doesn't believe in God's total control over all events. Second, because the biblical portrait shows that God is pure light and holy love. In him there is no darkness, nothing other than light and love. Third, because Job's word. Now, this was shocking to me. Third, because Job's words, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, do not express good theology. Yeah, Papa just said that's wrong. Imagine, imagine that, that Job is wrong to say the Lord gave and the Lord took away, because he says, no, Satan took him away, it wasn't God, but was God completely sovereign over Satan taking the, kid, Satan taking the kids away? Yes, um, and he, he clarifies here, um, if, if you're in Job 1, uh, look, look with me here, so look at verse 21, one of the most famous verses in Job, appropriately. Well, I'll start at verse 20. So Job just found out this horrible news. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Next sentence is from the inspired author. Verse 22, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So the narrator inspired says Job was right when he said God took away. The inspired narrator says Job had right theology right here. He didn't sin. What he said was right. If Job was wrong in his theology, he would be sinning about God. But he didn't sin, even the narrator. So then Ben Witherington continues, according to Job 1, it was not God, but the devil who took away Job's children, health, and wealth. God allowed it to happen. But when Job said these words, as the rest of the story shows, he was not yet enlightened about the true source of his calamity and what God's will actually was for his life. God's will for him was good and not for harm. So again, I think this is a misunderstanding of what we talked about. God is sovereign over, he's a primary cause, but he's sovereign over secondary causes, which means God may use Pharaoh to do something. He may use uh, Pilate to have Jesus crucified. He may use uh, Satan to bring about the death of his kids, but is God the ultimate author of, he's, he's not the author of sin, but is he the ultimate the sovereign one over all this? Yes, and his plan is being, is being worked out uh, in front of us. Let me continue here briefly. So the beginning of good grief Starts with the premise of a good God. Again, we had to define good biblically here. Otherwise, all bets are off. If God is almighty and malevolent, then there is no solace to be found in him. If God is the author of sin, evil, suffering, the fall, and death, then the Bible makes no sense when it tells us that God tempts no one, that God's will is that none should perish but have everlasting life, and that death is the very enemy of God and humankind, that Jesus, who is life, came to abolish and destroy. Jerry, I thought about this sentence, if God is the author, and he puts together a list here that shouldn't go together, sin, evil, suffering, the fall, and death. What, what would you say about that statement there? Yeah, I think we're, we're guaranteed suffering, for instance. God is not the author of evil, uh, sin or evil, but suffering, yes, he is. And so I think there's some words in there that, that don't fit the, uh, his argument there. 
because suffering is good for us and necessary. And, and Jesus promises it, so does Paul, all of Scripture does. Jerry, let me just go right to you one more time, because your wheelchair will be 40 years. 40 years in November? Next month. Right, because it's October 1st. So just, you've talked about, just, I know you've said this before, and you said it at the Perspective Members class, but just talk about, that's one of the best days of your life, uh, which I think a non-Christian would just find that very hard to believe. How could it be the day you broke your neck and now 40 years in a wheelchair? Why is that day so, so good to you? I think just because of how much I would have missed out on all the sanctification that God had. And since he knew that was the best way, then that's what we can count on. And it's just no different than any trial that anybody else has had. Every tri everybody's trials are going to be different, but they're all going to be perfect if they're a believer. And so I have to believe mine are perfect because I think Scripture guarantees that, and then life has proven it too, which isn't the important part. The important part is that Scripture says it. You just, I, know, I know we've gotten you to tell this before, Jerry, but I just want to hear it one more time. You're 17 years old. You're, you've just been hit. We watched the video a few, you know, six months ago, whenever it was. You, you collapse onto the ground. You're not moving at all. You can't move anything. Uh, your brother, yeah. your parents come down. They pull the ambulance right out, or the ambulance yeah. is nearby. They got, they're about to put you on the stretcher and whatnot. The guy, the guy comes and tells them not to pick you up. Yep. He noticed the way right. you fell. He knew it might be a neck injury. The guy comes over there. You see him waving his hands. Stop. Don't touch him. Don't touch him. So you're laying there on the ground. They're about to load you up onto the ambulance. You know something really drastic has happened. Yeah. And can you just explain the emotional experience? Like, it, it, What was God doing for you internally and in your mind yeah. during that? Just a flood of peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding is the only way I could describe that. And uh, from that, the, through the whole episode, but then uh, riding on, it was like a three-minute ride on the ambulance. The hospital was right close to the football field. But I remember thinking, I think for the very first time, I am going to know God in a whole different way. I have to believe that God was flooding my mind with the thrill of knowing him in a different way. And even though it was, I guess, 23 minutes after I broke my neck, it was really a clear, thrilling thought that I'm not sure how this is going to work. Or, you know, certainly I didn't know that, you know, 40 years later I would be in a wheelchair or whatever. There was a lot of unknowns at that point. But the guarantee was... I knew that I was experiencing a huge peace and that this trial was going to be really, really good in the end, in that it would help me to know the Lord in a different way. Can you pray for us? Yeah. Father, we are very grateful for your word and that we can't stand on your word in the midst of uh, trials. Certainly there will be trials that uh, we are unaware of uh, that come. We know that you will work those together for good. You will synergize them um, to conform us to the image of Christ. We thank you that we have all experienced that in our life in a different way, but we are way, way more thankful that Scripture guarantees it. Lord, we want to trust you. And uh, this week I pray that uh, anxiety and fear and um, depression or any sort of negativity uh, would um, not, as, as they um, will be um, looking to get us, I pray 
that we would not fall prey to those sins, but that we would race to your word, and we would hold on tightly to those promises, and we would believe them. We'd believe them in our head, and they would seep down and flood our hearts with joy in the midst of the trials, knowing that you're going to use every trial in our life to build perseverance and character and hope and make us mature and complete in Christ. And we do thank you today that our light momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen and help us to remember that what's unseen is eternal. What's seen is temporary and what's unseen is eternal. We want to live for your glory and we thank you for your sovereignty and providence in our lives in Jesus' name.